Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. This is episode 14. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron, and it's with me as always is uh, Adam Pawatic. Of course, our sponsors, what I think, are sponsors First National. Today, our guest is Richard Joy, the Executive Director at the Urban Land Institute of the Toronto Chapter. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Thank you. Um, so let's start, just maybe describe how you got into working ULI, you know, what, what your experience with real estate is. Let's start sort of from the beginning. Uh, okay, well, um, ULI is, uh, uh, I've got, it's my second uh, association. I was, uh, I'm going to go backwards in time. I think that's probably sure. the best way to, to do it. But I more, uh, most recently was the vice president of the Toronto Region Board of Trade, uh, where I headed up uh, policy and uh, and government relations uh, for them, where I was for a, a good long stretch through a very interesting uh, period of the city's history, transitioning from uh, David Miller into the Rob Ford era, mm-hmm. and uh, but prior to that, I, I had two uh, my sort of the you know key pieces of my my uh, work uh, uh, bio it would be uh, uh, two stretches in government, uh, one at the, the um, municipal affairs of the provincial government in Ontario, where I was responsible for a number of, of policy files, but uh, most significantly the City of Toronto Act, um, which is a, an act that has ta- got a lot of attention as a result of the the recent road toll. Uh, issue that that between the uh, city of Toronto and the province and the and the 905 municipalities, and before that, though, and, but I also was involved in the uh, OMB reform. Uh, I was involved in uh, uh, some aspects of the of the creation of the green belt. I worked at, at municipal affairs during uh, the uh, creation of the green belt. Um, at the same time, the uh, growth plan, which is under review, both the green belt and the and the growth plan are currently under review. They both came into existence during my tenure at, at uh, Queens Park. Uh, as did uh, the uh, creation of Metrolinks, the big regional uh, transit agency. So a very uh, heady time uh, at the province uh, was uh, when I was there. Before that, and the last uh, sort of relevant point, I, I did uh, about a five, six-year stretch uh, at the city of Toronto uh, in a political capacity uh, where I was a um, an executive dis- uh, assistant to two city councillors spanning uh, the amalgamation period. So I worked wow. for... Uh, uh, three years under uh, Barbara Hall's uh, mayoralty in the, in the uh, mid '90s uh, into the amalgamation period under Mel Lastman, uh, and uh, and then I, I moved up to Queens Park sometime in the uh, around uh, the year 2000 or so. Interesting. So so uh, I wanted to jump into the ULI then. So let's let's start there. I, I guess why don't you describe what it is and what you guys do first and foremost. First and foremost, we have a, a, uh, a mandate to uh, advance globally um, this idea of the responsible use of land and creating healthy communities. That's a very motherhood kind of idea, I know, but we uh, uh, get to define what that means uh, in every one of the 75 uh, districts. That's generally a metropolitan district or a national council. We have about 75 around the world. And uh, so in, in the Toronto context, that's a big part of our, our mission is uh, carried out through uh, events, through roundtables, through symposiums, uh, some uh, cases through uh, uh, public policy papers uh, that we release, and, uh, and also through various leadership initiatives uh, to help uh, grow 
uh, uh, leadership in a, in a responsible way. We have, a, a for example, a mid-career uh, program which has 30 uh, professionals from the broadest spectrum of, of disciplines that deal with land use walking through a seven-month course. We also have just introduced this year a, a course that's oriented towards high school students of age uh, grade 11 and 12 uh, grades, and, and uh, they are uh, two sort of signature things. And so th- those are the kinds of things that uh, we're mostly involved with. Is, the, is ULI a not-for-profit? We are a not-for-profit, and we're also not, uh, unlike when I was vice president of the uh, Board of Trade, we're not an advocacy organization. We do have a mission, um, but we don't do lobbying uh, in a classic uh, sense. Uh, we don't take positions black or white on major issues per se. It doesn't mean, though, that we don't have opinion. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, get very edgy. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, uh, insist uh, that we elevate public policy discussions on the issues of the day uh, beyond where they might otherwise be, which is often not the most sophisticated conversations. And so, so where's, the, where's the source of funding coming from then? Uh, our funding comes from mostly a corporate. Uh, we get a, a lot of sponsorship dollars from uh, uh, law firms and developers and architecture firms and so forth, so across the spectrum. A significant amount of our revenue comes from events, which uh, we you know we do registration, so people uh, pay to come to our events. Always cheaper if you're a member, of course, which brings up the third major stream, which is membership itself. Uh, and uh, we get uh, a fair amount of uh, revenue through that uh, uh, that inlet take. We don't do a lot, but we often uh, are in a situation where we might get a grant from a foundation to do a certain specific project or so, but that's usually a fairly small amount of our revenue stream. How many How many members? Well, we are now uh, approaching 1,700 members, 1,700 members uh, in the uh, Toronto region, which makes us actually, I mentioned 75 district councils or chapters, uh, which makes us fifth in the ULI Global World. Um, we are now larger than Chicago, which uh, is where ULI actually had its origins. So um, we've had an amazing uh, period of growth. And uh, just uh, this week, uh, ULI Globally uh, put out that it has cracked the 40,000 membership mark. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty significant How does that stand enormous, versus yeah. other... Uh, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I, I want to I talk about who your competitors are, how you see that, how you fit into the space... You know, I, I, it's, it's not a word that, that actually really comes to mind very often, the word competitor. Sure. Um, and uh, it's, it, 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 it's not to say that, that we uh, don't strive to be uh, the organization of choice if you have only so many dollars to spend on things like membership and sponsorship. Uh, but it doesn't really come into our mindset. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. I, we, we, we actually have an insanely broad uh, ecosystem of organizations that that touch real estate or land use in in the Toronto region. I think at one time Ryerson City Building Institute uh, actually did a a canvas of all those organizations from uh, associations to think tanks and and, and so forth and and they they came up with something like 40 uh, in this region which is just you know an unbelievable amount and and yet, amazingly, that isn't a recipe for competition. That that seems to be uh, creating this critical mass where uh, a lot of organizations that do uh, a variety of of, of uh, work in the public policy space, in the in the advocacy space, in the case of those organizations that do advocacy, uh, in the networking uh, sort of function, mm-hmm. which is very 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 important, I think, for all organizations, is, is that helps uh, people connect to one another. There doesn't seem to be a a zero sum game kind of equation. It seems. That, that the more 
of us there are, the more uh, room there is to, to sure. grow into that yeah. space, I which is funny. To, I belong to three personally. I belong to CCIM, I belong to NAOP, and I belong to ULI. And I guess something different from each of them, and they each occupy a different kind of um, you know, mental space, at least in my mind, what I'm getting out of it. And, it's, and they're all beneficial. Mm-hmm. What about you, Aaron? Who do you belong to? Um, I'm NAOP, uh, not ULI, but maybe I will be after this. Um, and I, I'll be honest, my, my opinion's a bit different. Yeah, I've, I find it all gets muddled. I can't keep up. Right? I think I'm on probably you know, 10 different distribution lists, some form or fashion. And it seems like if I wanted to, every single day there would be something, some breakfast, some lunch, some dinner. And I, 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 almost, it almost, I almost just disconnect because there's too much, it, it seems like, sometimes. And I just can't, I can't organize in my brain which ones are yeah. of better value or, or what what have you, right? Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 there is a, a lot of offering out there. Uh, but what's amazing to, to us is that uh, we keep expanding our programming and virtually everything we put out sells out. There's just, and you were just Adam at, a, at one such example, just, uh, and some of our events are deliberately smaller and the one that you were at, but I mean, it's sold out. It sells out. Uh, the small ones sell out within an hour. Within an so, hour. So yeah, there's, there's yeah, appetite actually. for it. Unbelievable. So that brings me back to you know, two questions. One is, first, we're, we're national in scope, that the podcast itself. And so what other chapters are there out there for, for listeners that aren't necessarily in the Toronto region? Sure. Um, so there's two uh, mature, uh, active chapters. One uh, that's called ULI Alberta, more or less centered in Calgary. And one is ULI BC, more or less centered in Vancouver. And uh, they're they're uh, active going concerns. Then they run autonomously, and and uh, we do occasionally do some things in coordination with them. Um, there is, for example, an annual meeting, usually in the U.S., that uh, uh, brings six to eight thousand professionals from around the continent together. And we always do a ULI Canada uh, uh, reception, which is. Uh, uh, one that gets crashed by all sorts of different <laughs> countries because um, it's one of the better receptions, always on a sexy rooftop uh, uh, like the last one in Dallas. But very soon, I think we're going to see start seeing uh, ULI uh, pop up in uh, places like Ottawa and Montreal. Uh, we just did our very first event in Ottawa, sold out. We're looking to do a second event in Ottawa uh, probably this spring. Uh, Montreal's pounding at the door. Um, very, very interested in doing something. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably maybe as early as this spring, uh, but certainly I think in the next uh, 12 months, we'll, we'll probably start testing uh, whether uh, the ULI offering uh, is something that works in, in, in those markets. How big are the ones in Alberta and BC? Do you have any sense from a membership they're, perspective? They're, they're probably around 400 members okay. each, roughly, give or take. So, so a decent size. Yeah, they're not, they're not quite as large as Toronto. Toronto's, as I mentioned, now you know, uh, 1,600 plus, so mm. we're, we're by far the largest. Yeah. And so then that that brings me to you know why in Toronto is there such an appetite for these things? I mean, there there are again it's NAOP, CCIM. I know I know Biz now has kind of come up and started to do some conferences and things like that. You know, there America that's an American um, mm-hmm. sort sure, of association. Sure. Um, why is there such appetite in Toronto? And maybe it's just why is it the real estate in particular seems to have this sort of yeah vibrancy. Well, to it. I mean, we got to remember Toronto is the fastest growing city region in all of North America. I mean, it, it, and it, and it, it had, it, I remember I started, you know, I mentioned uh, going back to the Barbara Hall era of the mid nineties. Uh, and I remember when there was really no development going on in, in the city region. Uh, and then around sometime around 96, 97, 98, things took off and they haven't stopped 20 uninterrupted years of, of growth. Uh, even the uh, global recession really just was a kind of a 
lightning, lightning off on the gas pedal for Toronto, but then it just went back back into it. Uh, no other uh, city region in North America has seen that kind of uh, longevity, that uh, level of growth in terms of, of quantum. Uh, and uh, um, so we we are just becoming uh, increasingly the it place in, in, in the continent for uh, real estate development in many, many ways. Um, you know, long, for a long time, we were outpacing New York City in terms of, of, of the number of, of uh, uh, floors under construction uh, for high rise. Uh, for example, we're now number two, but, you know, uh, to second in New York, that's uh, unbelievable for a city the size of Toronto. Um, and I think that I think that that what's happened in that 20 year period, I mean, there's a whole generation of professionals who are many of them are well into their mid career stage right now who've known nothing but a booming economy. And they and they are passionate and our member going back to our membership almost 50% of our membership is under the age of 35 hmm. uh, and that there's no other district council of the 75 mentioned that has that uh, demographic it, it, it we we are fueled by our youth and and i think the excitement of a lot of these organizations uh, is that there's a lot of people who just who just are super super passionate about city building whatever their angle in might be as the events that you throw are all are all development focused, and given that Toronto's been in such a boom for so long, uh, the attraction to the to ULI must have been just growing every single year during that twenty year time frame. Yeah, and I think I think that is. I mean, we talking about all these different associations occupying slightly different spaces, and one of the really fun things about our space is that it is. Um, I used the word ecosystem once before, but I'll use it again, and it's a good word. Um, we we really occupy the, the broad broadest ecosystem. That, that is you know pretty much any discipline that touches land use that includes public sector private sector the NGO uh, uh, third sector as well our programming reflects that that breadth so we're, we're probably uh, uh, what you see at ULI is going to be a little different than what you might see in a, in a more um, focused uh, organization on one particular uh, a class a asset class or one particular profession. Ours is a little bit more holistic, and and I think that that's something that that is a nice compliment for those who have multiple memberships. They can come to ULI and get that 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 broader uh, uh, ecosystem uh, perspective, which I think has uh, been a really uh, interesting part of our growth story. At least the other organization that I focus a lot of my time on would be uh, NAOP, and that is definitely a corporate real estate focused endeavor. A lot of pension funds walking around there. A lot of lenders like Aaron and myself walking around there. And then the other organization, actually, I, uh, last year I was the president of the Toronto chapter of uh, CCIM. But that is, you know, that entry to that membership has a very large education component. So that's the focus of CCIM is providing a world class education. So obviously much harder to attract people to it when it requires 250 hours of classroom activity and several thousand dollars in, in fees. It's not show up and have two drink tickets handed yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah. And is that, I guess that is you've answered sort of a question lingering in my head is the the differentiator to ULI, but it is you're, you're more of a holistic focused on the use of land uh, rather than sort of Adam points out some of the more specific focused uh, associations out there. Yeah, I think that's right, and uh, and and there's been uh, you know of, of in the last several years it's been perhaps fortuitous to have that particular broader ecosystem. Uh, perspective because uh, there's been so many fundamental and currently you know as we as we look at the provincial uh, government reviews of the uh, Ontario on the on the regional growth plan for the GTHA 
uh, and really the Golden Horseshoe, uh, and uh, as well as uh, uh, other reforms around related to the Green Belt, related to the Ontario Municipal Board, the OMB. There's a, a lot of, uh, of, of big thinking uh, that, that cuts across a lot of discipline and going on right now, and that really suits uh, an organization like ours really well. We're able to get into that that, that, that depth. And, and I, I don't think it came out. What what do you what are you doing specifically from a day to day basis at ULI? Well, um, you mentioned the programming, and, and and that's a big big part of it. So we we're we're a fairly small staff organization, just four people. Um, people are always surprised when they hear that because mm. they, they, it seems like we're we're uh, uh, doing an event a week and. It seems like that because, quite frankly, practically are you are, uh, yeah. and and um, and so. Uh, but but putting on an event is, of course, not just uh, you know getting a venue and and a caterer and and, and, a, and slapping together a panel. It, it, you know, we put a lot of thought into into creating a, a, a really really thoughtful programming, bringing together really really uh, uh, amazingly qualified uh, speakers to uh, get into all sorts of depth. Chemistry of our panels is always something really really important. Reflecting the diversity of, of not just the professional diversity, but the but but the diversity of our population, diversity uh, gender-wise, uh, you will not find a, a what is often called a manal in uh, a, you know all male uh, panel uh, at ULI. Maybe, maybe you could catch me out on a couple of lies on that one, but almost never. So really, really important to 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 drive. Uh, uh, women's leadership, uh, which is a big part of, of our organization, really important to drive uh, young leaders, another really important part of our organization. So trying to bring uh, some of the complexity, uh, our region's demographic, our professional's demographic is is a challenge to do that on an ongoing basis. And, and, and I think we do that uh, quite well. Um, but we're also, uh, you know, deeply enmeshed sort of in behind the scenes uh, in conversations with government, we do roundtables that brings the mayor's office, uh, brings the premier's office, brings the minister's office uh, on a routine, brings the chief planner uh, on a routine basis. We are able to take, you know, for example, the issue of inclusionary zoning. We're not going to take a position for or against inclusionary zoning. For those of you who don't know, that is the idea of saying that uh, at a minimum of any new development, there will be X percent of affordable uh, housing could be rental, could be ownership. That's a GTA uh, specific. Well, zoning. it's uh, being looked at as a provincial initiative okay? uh, that that could be applied municipality by municipality, ultimately uh, uh, implemented at the municipal level. It would be a, it would be a blanket policy in the sense that every development. It wouldn't, you wouldn't pick and choose buildings. It would be blanket uh, policy. For well, we don't know fully how the tool may be used. The legislation hasn't actually, f- and the regulations that that go with it haven't been uh, fully uh, enacted, but um, the uh, municipalities then have to pick up the tool. And, and, they, and they could be general, uh, blanket as you describe it, or they could potentially, you know, like Section 37, they could apply it in a, in a more targeted uh, basis is my understanding. Um, so that's exactly how it, it, it will unfold. And of course, it's municipality by municipality. So you cross the border of one uh, city to the next. It may be different in Mississauga than uh, in Brampton or Toronto. So those are all going to be things that will be very interesting. But the point going back to the roundtable is that we you know, brought together uh, Premier's office, Chief Planner, uh, Jennifer Kiesmat, uh, senior planning officials from the 905, industry experts, 
inclusionary zoning is a policy that is widely used, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Uh, in you mean the U- another, in, 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 in other jurisdictions, jurisdictions in, in, yeah. in the U.S. And so we brought one of the leading experts of, of that, uh, of, of a report that the Urban Land Institute actually developed um, out of Washington uh, that to, to such a roundtable to uh, have a very informed discussion. Uh, it didn't lead to a recommendation. It just elevated the dialogue. And so people understood that issue, and I could pick others, that was one, that issue, that, just, just that but much better. Going back to the to the events that you run, you talked about the kind of uniqueness of them. The event that I attended earlier this week was definitely unique. It was not to show up for a panel, hear an hour of intelligent conversation, have a cocktail afterwards, and go home. This event was at hosted by Norm Lee, which is a image and graphics design company, I suppose, largest right. in North America. And so at the event, they brought us by their various workstations where they work on you know the imaging they would use at least in the context of why we were there, to sell condos. Uh, and each station, they had different kinds of food available. So it was an interesting kind of pairing to the evening. But the it gave, you know, it gave me the opportunity to you know, see how they do these renderings, which is very cool. But the grand finale was putting on virtual reality helmet and the, the matching gloves so you could walk around a virtual condo and handle everything inside it. And you could, they, you know, they had features where you could uh, throw things around this, this virtual condo. And it's very immersive, very amazing, very cutting edge. And I was largely unaware of it, but it was you know, a fantastic experience and definitely you know, more unique than your kind of standard issue, you know, breakfast or a cocktail reception. Well, I mean, it, it, it's a good example of the fun that, that we have with, and the, with the latitude that we have. We, we can go into VR, virtual reality, on one day, and we can you know, get into pro forma, you know, sort of energy dry, dry, efficiency, dry, or energy or, efficiency or, or, yeah. or, or uh, any number of things, uh, urban design and architecture and so forth. We, we can go in a whole lot of different places. And, 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 uh, and sometimes what's, what's really, really important about that, and it's, and it's coming out in a lot of the work we're doing now, is it's exposing professionals who may be in one discipline who sometimes even deep into their career, even at their mid-career stage or even later, uh, are, are a little bit siloed uh, with, with where they're at and how they understand um, what, how what they do interacts with what others in, in, in this broader land use real estate ecosystem do. And uh, so we're increasingly giving people the opportunity to bust out of those silos and to not only meet but actually interact in a very meaningful way um, I mentioned pro forma, but uh, you know that 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 only a certain number of people have to ever really probably deal with those kinds of numbers. Lawyers often don't, architects often don't, uh, and yet not understanding the basic concepts behind the financials of of real estate puts those professions at a disadvantage. So we 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 have a course that we're now uh, rolling out with uh, at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor Stephen Weber is basically pro forma for the rest of us. Uh, it's something that will give people who don't need to use it enough understanding that they can appreciate the realities of, of, of what of what the finances are. And, right, we, and understand why decisions are being made at certain right, times. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and I think that is, again, one of those advantages of being a, a sort of multidisciplinary uh, association as we are. Very neat. Is there anything else you want to talk about on ULI? I'd, I'd like to maybe let's take the topic off to, towards other things now and just maybe pick in, pick your brain on different different things. You've had such a wide variety of experiences in the past. So, I, you know, do you want to talk sure. anything else? Well, about I, I do. I mean, if, if I were just to put a bow on ULI and it's uh, just that uh, we're having a lot of fun. Um, we've we've seen unbelievable growth in our own organization. In two years, we've more than doubled our, our, our membership 
uh, uh, as, as a, uh, a factor, I think, of, of, of uh, catching a certain uh, uh, magic in a bottle that, that seems to be working really well. So if any of your listeners are, are I'm going to do a little ad here, any of your listeners are interested in, uh, in checking out ULI, I would encourage it. It is it is an organization that 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 uh, works well with with whatever other uh, pursuits you may have by way of uh, industry association. Can they just go to the website? What's the website? Just uh, Google uh, Urban Land Institute Toronto. Uh, the best way to find and it. memberships can be done online. Absolutely, yeah, great. And if you're in advertising mode, you want to mention the April conference. Ah, well, thank you for that opportunity too. A uh, great example of, of 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 doing some really big stuff that cuts across all sorts of different lenses. But uh, we have a, a huge uh, conference. We've got some big name speakers like Richard Florida, uh, but we've also got a whole about seventy five international and local speakers from and, and, and national speakers from across Canada, looking at at land use particularly through three lenses: mobility, technology and uh, placemaking and uh, it's a really really amazing program and I, I, I think and we're going to we're going to examine all sorts of different uh, aspects of, uh, of, of of the region city building blocks uh, like rail deck park and so forth uh, through uh, through those lenses great uh, can I take us back to inclusionary zoning sure okay so this is let me set the table a little bit for our listeners it, you know uh, as as Richard's kind of pointed out we're one of the fastest or if not the fastest growing uh, sort of urban uh, region in North America uh, and of course with that comes a lot of different pressures on on different um, you know different assets different different facets but one of the biggest pressures is affordable housing and how do you how do you keep the people um, how do you how do you keep some section of the new developments uh, affordable for for the, the population at large and, and and so the city has has, um, or sorry, the, the the province it seems has kind of landed on this this concept of inclusionary zoning, uh, which uh, my understanding is has not yet been finalized. That's just kind of what they've kind of put out there is, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. And and my understanding, Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is effectively they would say, okay, um, we're going to make this block, you know, give an example in Toronto, say Bathurst, um, you know, from Bathurst north. From Dundas to College, anything that's developed on this block is going to be inclusionary zoned and therefore must contain a certain proportion of uh, affordable units. Is that is that generally how they, they they're seeing it work? I, I, oh, I, I as I said, I think that the city uh, and all the municipalities in Ontario haven't yet seen finally uh, what the toolbox that they're they're being given by the province uh, looks like. But as I understand it, in the as the, uh, that what you're describing is probably likely true that that the city uh, would have a, a reasonable amount of latitude to apply it to certain geographies and not others, uh, possibly even building by building. That is still uh, uh, some of the detail that 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 hasn't being, come out. But yeah. I, I I suspect that there'll be more flexibility than not. So I think you're right. Part of the challenge, of course, is you 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 put these mandates in, and maybe it's a it's a price per square foot threshold that it must be maintained you say it can't be more than x of you know dollars per square foot on a, on a purchase price but how do you maintain that going forwards is it only for rentals is it for condos i mean there's so many challenges with with putting this sort of blanket zoning in place right and, well it's it's a good point and, and and i think one of the things that is important to understand about what's being envisioned in 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 the context of our market which is largely a, a condominium market and not a purpose-built rental market yeah. which is the flip of what much of the U.S. is like. In the U.S., inclusionary zoning is almost entirely used in purpose-built rental. So the idea that you could, you know, the concept of, of uh, finding a way to say to one single landlord who, who owns the entire building, 
that X percentage of units are going to be uh, rented at at a, at a discounted uh, uh, rent is not impo- very hard to imagine how that administratively could take place. When you're talking about a home ownership model, to your point, it's a little more complicated. Now there are models, there are uh, second mortgage models, and, and others that 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 uh, work uh, uh, in usually fairly small scale in, in in our jurisdiction, but larger scale in places like London, England, um, where there's uh, you know equity models that. Uh, work for uh, uh, shorter or longer tenures of, of ownership uh, and you only own a piece of it and, and there's mechanisms to keep um, that stock always at some quote-unquote affordable sort of level. But uh, what is being imagined in in uh, Ontario is uh, a lot more uh, a pioneering policy than probably many people get. Mm-hmm. It's not the U.S. circumstance up here. Do you think there's a chance to stifle development if implemented less than optimally i i do and and or the flip side of stifling development is the tool isn't used and and, and i actually believe that as envisioned right now inclusionary zoning is probably a tool that a number of municipalities will dabble with um they might find that 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 the they're scaring away uh development uh, or not scaring away but just making it making it possible for financially number, financially it, making yeah, it yeah, yeah. possible to to uh, to work and uh it's great you know, I mentioned the 20-year booming uh, real estate economy we've had, and you know, and and it, and it, it is seductive to think that that's always going to be the climate we're in. But when things start to go a little bit flatter or down, uh, then then um, we're uh, probably looking at those kind of policy tools a little differently. So I actually am worried because I do believe we have to figure out affordability in in in, in uh, uh, rental and ownership, uh, and I'm worried that this tool. As it's currently being imagined, is uh, is not going to get used, uh, and we're not. And it's actually going to be a wasted moment where we should be looking at some other alternatives to uh, uh, to how to achieve housing affordability. I wouldn't want to say I'm just sorry to, to, to ramble here, but I, I do want to say I think the concept of uh, inclusionary zoning, even in an ownership model, isn't entirely wrong. I'm just not sure that the way it's being applied here in uh, Ontario is is going to work. That's my concern. So what would the alternatives be? Well, let's go back to an alternative idea around inclusionary zoning. We have this great circumstance in a way, terrible in another way, but our city, let's use Toronto, is absolutely enormously underzoned. Everybody gets that. You can't do anything without without uh, hitting up against zoning. It's 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 it's, it's something. It's a legacy of our of our city uh, uh, land use approvals uh, process. Is that we underzone everything so we can apply the maximum approvals process to mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. There are opportunities, especially uh, where there may be uh, like a, a, a transit station or something of, of great provincial interest. To make sure that the density uh, comes along around that investment. There are opportunities for the state be that the province or the city, to actually facilitate higher zoning than would otherwise be in place. And in exchange for that, take some affordability as, as part of the public good uh, in that mm-hmm. equation. I think that's a kind of an example where, where you're, not, you're, not going, you're not asking the landowner to fight their way through the oppressive years, zonings, yeah. uh, under zoning, and on top of that, give you affordable housing. You're actually saying we're going to give you some density, 
but the but the equation is that some of that comes back in the form of affordable housing. And, we, and we've had a number of, of developers, purpose built and condo developers, and they've all mentioned that as as uh, appealing to them, right? That they they make that makes sense to them. We've had this conversation, and everybody yeah. acknowledges affordable affordability is a huge, you know, hugely important aspect of what we're doing going forwards in the city. Uh, but you know, I think everybody's uh, you know the, the responses we've got when we've had these conversations is it doesn't seem to be working yet, right? And they haven't for whatever reason the city or the province just hasn't figured out this equation that you're talking about. Well, that's right. And 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 again, in a, an example, like say, take New York City, where inclusionary zoning is, is quite widespread. They've had zoning regime there for 100 years. Uh, and so when the equation, when, when the uh, proposition of uh, inclusionary zoning comes along, it's it's now saying, where you, as you normally could expect to get X, we are going to allow you to develop X plus Y, and why is is how you're going to pay for affordable mm-hmm. zoning? We don't have X in our underzone scenario here. There is no there is no above and beyond uh, in the Ontario or Toronto context, and that's one of the other fundamental problems with inclusionary zoning is that is that is that nobody really knows. You know, there's no way to really say that this this is the additional amount that you otherwise couldn't ever have expected, and uh, so the the value of land already anticipates maxing out. You know what the density, what the density, and so so there's nothing. It's really taking the only way to pay for it is to take away from the profitability of, of the development, which is in, invariably going to get carried into the cost of the units that aren't subsidized, mm-hmm. and that's not helping affordability. Absolutely. Or through development charge rebates, which then takes away revenue from the city. So somebody's right. got to lose. There's exactly, exactly. Uh, one of the one of the solutions that I've heard is sort of this portability, right? It's almost a registry, and you you know an individual would get on this registry, and you know, that would give them sort of the subsidy, and then they can take that. Um, it almost would be a card that says I my rent is X based on my income, based on my applications, and I can go and rent wherever I want, and that that provides affordability, but not in a specific location. Right. Yeah, no, that is, and then there is a bit of that. Already in our on Ontario uh, rent subsidy uh, that you can you know walk, walk around with and it has its advantages. Uh, it's definitely uh, uh, probably a little uh, cheaper than a bricks and mortars type of approach, but at some point it's probably going to start skewing market too. You're you're driving up the low end of uh, uh, rents because a, a landlord still is able to uh, charge uh, a market rent that you get subsidized through your mm-hmm. subsidy, but for those who aren't getting subsidized that probably driving up the rental the rent. uh, uh, the rents of those uh, non-subsidized uh, uh, units as well. So every policy has a, a, a possible sort of uh, unintended consequence, yeah. you know, those, yeah. Do you want to move on? What do you want to talk about, Richard? I'm just well, curious, yeah. If we can talk about the the OMB, I've got a funny OMB story to lead us into into that. Okay, let's do that. This is from uh, just uh, actually last night. My, my beloved mother never posts on Facebook very often. But felt compelled to go online and rail against a new development going up because it was going to drastically change the character of a neighborhood. I won't name which one because I want to protect her, obviously. <laughs> but she went on Facebook and uh, and you know made much comments. And so I emailed her and said, "I saw you on Facebook, and uh, I hope you find this funny. But I'm trying to finance that building." <laughs> she responded this morning. I got uh, the email from her this this morning. Well, I hope you find it funny when I'm at the OMB with the loudest voice in the room. So <laughs> interfamily discord because of the uh, the OMB. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I mean, there's there's many uh, ways to take the OMB uh, story. So I'll, I'll let you guide it. But I'll, but I will say, 
Uh, it's a tricky, tricky topic uh, in so many ways. It, it is true uh, that the OMB, uh, as part of our approval system, has us as probably the least uh, democratic municipality or jurisdiction across Ontario, really, in North America. Uh, there's no other jurisdiction that, that has something akin to the OMB, or at least as, as sweeping in its, in its powers as the OMB that can effectively overturn the locally democratic decisions of a, of a municipality. That is a, a fact. Um, but on the other hand, there's really no outside of New York uh, City uh, in North America that's achieved the kind of, of urban density uh, and intensification that allows our city to work so well. Uh, our, we have a relatively small footprint as an entire urban region. Um, our density is is similar to that of Copenhagen. It surprises people, but it's true. And uh, you know, when you compare the, the, our population to a, a similar city, like say Chicago's, probably double the footprint of our of our city region. Um, the OMB has been an instrument that uh, to to achieve uh, a kind of, of of important, essential urban uh, built form that other cities in North America would dream to have. So it's it's. Um, and I think democratically, most people you know that I've talked to like the idea of things like a growth plan or a green belt that that keeps uh, the growth of a region contained within certain boundaries. But to achieve that, you need intensification. That's the flip side, of course. You're not growing out, you're growing up, and and uh, the OMB can help facilitate that. And and uh, so I think the question on OMB is not whether or not OMB, in my view. It's how to make it, it the right balance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are a lot of egregious examples of where the OMB has just become a parallel universe to, to that that happens at the municipal level. And, and those, those shouldn't happen. The OMB should be a true appeals body. It should be the, 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 the body that, that carefully interprets the city's own official plan that reflects provincial policies. And if it if it's, you know, sort of stays within that scope, I think it's doing its function. But it also ensures that the the politics that go along with land use approvals is kept in check because that is what's that's what I mean in right now in LA um, they passed a resolution very democratically but right now um, virtually I- impossible to do intensification in LA uh, as a result of uh, a resolution that was passed last November I mean that that that's an LA we all know is not exactly uh, you know the best uh, urban form uh, and we don't want to we don't want to go that way uh, I don't think so I think the OMB is always going to be something that we have to tinker with to to get it right, and I don't know that we ever have, and I'm not sure that the current reforms are 100% best, but they're pretty impressive in my view, and I've been on record on saying that already. I did a town hall meeting with the Premier, actually, in her jurisdiction, you know, a bit of an angry mob constituency, not happy with the OMB, but we made these points, and I think a lot of people accepted them as, as valid, that the OMB... Uh, it's not entirely a terrible idea uh, when you think of the upside. What, that, that in my mind, I see it kind of as a counterbalance to sort of almost nimbyism, right? And, and that that word gets thrown around a lot, but it's almost becoming a dirty word, right? In, in my mind, it's it, it's this this concept that it, it nimbyism, this not in my backyard, is stymieing the development that right. we need in this city, right? And, and right. that uh, rightfully so, people don't want this type of intensification or density uh, changes in their backyard. And I understand that, but sometimes that may not be what's best for the the city and the population at large and the OMB often makes these decisions maybe going against what a city councilor would do based on what they're hearing from their constituents. Yeah, I, I think absolutely it is. And, and, and what's a, another important thing, a lot of people have in mind that, that everything goes to the OMB and, and the Toronto Star just did a, a three-part series uh, this past weekend 
and uh, it got some criticism from the planning department because it, it seemed, at least through some of the headlines, that the OMB was basically making all of the planning decisions in the, in the city of Toronto, when in fact 93 or 6% of all planning decisions are sorted out without the OMB. So it's really the OMB is is, is, is a very small minority of, of planning decisions. But usually applied to high-profile developments. But often to high-profile yeah. developments. But what's important in that 93%, I think it is, uh, of, of those developments that are approved without going to the OMB is the threat of the OMB. Uh, I think it brings uh, people together to be rational about uh, what is, uh, where does where does the NIMBY line, and I don't think it's a terribly uh, mis- uh, inappropriate term, where does that NIMBY line going too far as to push something into the OMB where you don't know the outcome? Uh, whereas settling with, with, a, with a development proposal, getting the kinds of great urban design outcomes, getting some of the other uh, public realm benefits, uh, making sure that it connects uh, communities and, and so forth and ongoing issues like that are, are things that, 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 that get sorted out knowing that it, the devil you know is often better than the devil you don't. And I can tell you from my own example, I had five years at City Hall. I had 16 official plan amendment files that I was involved with. Only one of them went to the OMB. All of them got settled uh, with significant transformation uh, in land use involved because people were way more willing to settle on what they knew than what they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Can you dispel this notion that the developers and their uh, high octane, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ivy educated, you know, uh, uh, army of lawyers uh, that go into the city and just bully them around? You've got sort of city officials that are part of the bureaucracy, and that you know that that, that sometimes you think that the wrong decisions get made because you've got so much money coming from the developers' end and and bullying the the, the city into making decisions that maybe they wouldn't want, or and maybe add that on to the comment about the OMB, you know, devil hanging over the the developers, the the city. Planner's shoulder. Well, I, I I do think there is a very very significant issue there, and uh, it's not so much that the developers have the Ivy League uh, uh, lawyers and developers and so forth uh, on their team, and and they're outpowering uh, um, the caliber of the professionals on the public uh, side. It's that is that over so many years when uh, city I'll use Toronto has uh, imagined itself cutting fat. It's often cut at brain. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's actually where the deepest wounds of fiscal restraint are often uh, found in any level of government. It's, it's, it's the people who do policy work. It's the people who do uh, uh, work uh, on things like planning. And, and the city is severely understaffed. Mm-hmm. It's not that the caliber of the individuals are, 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 are not uh, uh, top-notch. Some of the best, I think, planning minds in the region are uh, in the uh, in the municipal realm. Absolutely, it's just that the and, and, and evidence of that. I mean, Toronto's the the crop of, of 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 planning officials that came out of the city of Toronto in the 1970s went on to conquer the world. Um, they were the best planners, not just in the city, uh, but 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 around the world. With some mm-hmm. amazing, amazing examples: uh, the Ken Greenbergs, uh, the, the Tony Coombs. Uh, 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 the Joe Barrages. I mean, I, they're they're just. I mean, really, really, really. Uh, some of the best uh, talent is contained within the in the civil service, um, but they're just not enough of them, and they're overwhelmed by applications. And the city is loath to cut somebody who picks up trash because uh, that's frontline thing that everybody will notice. But they're happy to cut uh, an invisible planner uh, or electrician to ravage 
you know, the planning department over years because it's sort of not immediately visible mm-hmm. to people that that's a diminishment of, of, of public service. What's the solution if there is one? Well, I think the solution on that particular front is, more money. Is, is, well, it is. And it's, and it's crazy. And you think about, uh, you know, we'll spend billions of dollars on infrastructure projects that are going to transform the communities that they're near and spend pennies on the planning side of that equation. I mean, just it, it, the, the dollars are not being apportioned properly. We need to put more money. We have more money. We can do better things. Couldn't you make the developers with, pay the salary of the planners or take fees from it just to, to, to beef up that side of the of the city? You mean through things like development charges? Yeah, and, or and, I'm and, not sure. And, I mean, I'm just I'm yeah, spitballing I, gets, at this point. Yeah, it gets... Uh, <laughs> Uh, spitball away. I do think it's tricky. I mean, I it, you know you you could uh, ask developers to uh, put in a whole lot more money into the uh, approvals process uh, in places where you want them to do development, mm-hmm. making it potentially more expensive for them to do the development where you want them to do it, and they might not do it. Yeah. So you you there is a there is a a line to which that works, and and uh, you know I'd I'd rather uh, put. More cost into you know where you don't want development. Perhaps I would suggest as a very urban focused organization like the Urban Land Institute, you know perhaps more more development charges in greenfield cir- circumstances, um, which uh, involve a whole lot of new infrastructure uh, costs and so forth. But but that's uh, that's a big debate. We could go down that path if we want. But I think that's that right now. I think that, that the city has to maybe find ways of of in, improving its resources around planning through other revenue streams, not out of the hides of every developer. Especially when Toronto's in such a large growth period, the impact of the decisions made now are going to be felt. At some point, the party should slow down or stop. Hopefully not within our careers, but maybe shortly after. The day I retire. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. No, I, 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 I think the, the city um, is a uh, something a city manager of Toronto, uh, the, the former city manager of Toronto, uh, Joe Panacetti, um, offered up in a recent uh, talk. Is that when you when you take inflation out of the equation, um, the city of Toronto is a smaller government than it was 20 years ago. It it, it feels like it's ever bloating, but it's not. And when inflation adjusted, and and when you consider that its responsibilities, and those have shifted by the way over 20 years, so you can't. It's hard to do apples to apples exactly, but but to the extent that you could you can you can correct for all the all the various different uh, you know, shifting landscapes. Uh, that certainly the the uh, property taxes. Have been under inflation uh, for 20 years. Uh, we've had three years, four years in the last 20 of zero percent property tax increase. We've had no, never have we had zero percent inflation. Um, so we it's are. A, putting, it's a political hot button, though. That's the problem with trying to change that. Is everybody notices that it'll be in every newspaper. It'll be talked about endlessly sure. during the next election. It's uh, it's sure. It's, 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 it's politically challenging. That's yeah. no question about that. But the flip side is that 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 we are shrinking our, we are cutting our brain, we're cutting our planning resources, and we are getting, uh, I think, more uh, uh, challenging uh, uh, situations whereby uh, the city can't uh, uh, adequately. Um, finesse the kind of planning applications that come through, and it, and it will manifest itself in you know poor urban design and and various other kinds of of, of outcomes. Uh, one approval is not the same as another. You know they, that more care and detail is often the the make or break to good development or bad development. And the city is increasingly in a in a spot where it's hard to deliver on that idea. I'm curious what your opinion is. Uh, and again, I, I, we're just 
full blanket disclosure. Obviously, you're the expert here. I don't. I don't. I'm not. I have no sense whether this is accurate or not. But it. It sometimes it seems like decisions are being made and, and development is being approved without maybe consulting other aspects of this, the, the the city plan. And, and I'll use an example. You know the. Um, the development that's going on, the, the massive developments that are going on at the uh, Park Lawn and Lakeshore region. There's a ton of towers going up, and that Mr. Christie plant got purchased, and I think they're building another, uh, you know, something like three or four thousand units. But there's there's very little public transportation out in that area, and it doesn't seem that it's coming anytime soon. There's there's you know the gardener's already backed up, and I'm just it, uh, sometimes it seems like these things are being approved without a full thought process. And that, maybe I'm wrong, but you know I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is. Well, I I, I do think. Toronto is uh, the flip side of being, you know, the fastest growing large city region in North America is uh, uh, so much is coming at, at the city that I think that some mistakes have been made. Uh, I don't uh, particularly, I'm not a huge uh, fan of, of uh, how Liberty Village is. is, is yeah, true. that's not, I heard you stories know, that some people, uh, it takes them 40 minutes to get out of their, their garage because there's no, there's no, they haven't, there's not, not enough lanes, car lanes just to drive in and out of that space, right? When you, no you sort of comment on that, that was, yeah. was my thought was, that's what you're going to refer as a Liberty Village yeah. uh, fiasco. It's Basically, there's, you know, there's only a postage stamp size uh, piece of grass for all the dogs in that area. I've heard if you want to go, if you want to go uh, grocery yeah, shopping, yeah. you go at midnight. That's the only time you right. could, rather than, you, otherwise you're lining right. up for 30 minutes right now some of some times those things are just a matter of sequencing so yeah, it sure. might be that the transportation opportunities of of smart track of rer the regional express rail this is the electrification of go uh which is going to mean more faster uh, service uh, through all that network much mm-hmm. of it will mm-hmm. benefit uh, the uh, liberty village uh, just to give that use that example Sometimes these are just transit. You know, these things, takes aren't, time. things aren't happening yeah, you, you in the sequence, and, and and so you, you get those awkward moments. But I do believe uh, we are suffering from uh, uh, far more uh, development uh, than we have resources to handle, uh, and from a from a from a planning perspective. And uh, you know, I, there's been comparisons of of Toronto to other other U.S. jurisdictions, and and sometimes as as you know, we're we're sometimes about a quarter the level of resources that some American mm. jurisdictions have for the same amount of dollars of development application coming at them, which is, I think, uh, stunning. Stunning. Before we uh, get to the end here, Richard, we always want to ask our guest you know, a personal question. So if you were to go back in time to a, a young Richard Joy just starting his career, what two pieces of advice would you give yourself? I think one thing I'd say in my career that I think I did right was follow my passion. I, I've, I've been really, really lucky at, at being able to uh, make a career out of what I really love to do. And and uh, uh, I, I would say if I could go back and give myself that advice, I'd say take that advice. You know, I, I, I you know, you cannot uh, enjoy a career that you're not passionate about. And I think it's really important to, to capture that. But I also would say that I probably, uh, you know, there's, there, there's a timidness that, that sometimes goes along with, with one's uh, career pursuit. Uh, I'm thinking that, that perhaps they're not quite ready to take that next step up. And so they delay taking that step up. Uh, and I think there's probably some moments where I probably should have stepped up sooner. You know, there's, you know, I'm not saying it's fake it till you make it, but, but acknowledge that you're probably, you know, as they say, richer than you think, you're probably more capable than you think. And to not be shy uh, of, of, of doing that. I think I probably uh, uh, was a little uh, less confident in myself in my early career uh, than perhaps I feel now. And, 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 but I probably could have been confident 
more sooner or more quickly in my career. And, and I think I would have said to myself back then, uh, go for it sooner. It's great advice. I think everybody has that at points where they sit in their comfort zone a little longer than they should have because it's quite comfortable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah and there all those old adages, you know, the, the grass isn't always green on the other side, but you know, you never know unless you, unless you try, right? Uh, up next, we've got our new segment, and this actually wasn't even planned, but the, the article I've got here covers a number of the things we were just uh, talking about. It's from Property Biz Canada, which operates under the umbrella of the Real Estate News Exchange. It's Milbourne enjoys record year amidst Toronto condo boom. For anybody that doesn't know Hunter Milbourne, he's one of the condo kings of the last the last 40 years. And on a personal note, uh, I've known him since I was born, my dad and him first uh, started working together at Harbor Square. It's one of the first condos in downtown Toronto, and he was actually at my, my, my wedding recently. But he was uh, just featured in an article here. So Millborn Group, the largest new condominium broker in Canada, has helped sell more than 100,000 units valued at more than $25 billion in more than 700 developments over the past 40 years. So obviously his career is epic, and the, the depth of his knowledge is, you know, is, is enormous. Uh, just in the last year, there was 30,000 new condo units sold in the city, and he did 5,200, which is 20% of the market. He said it was a record year for, for him. But some of the comments within the, the article actually tie into some of the episodes we've had recently in the podcast. Balanced condo market should have about 9 to 12 months worth of inventory, and Toronto has approximately 10,000. With the recent sales velocity, that's just a four-month supply. Uh, Sean Hildebrand was talking about that in his episode that despite all the market predictions, condo supply has dwindled till, to you know, arguably you know, unhealthy, unhealthy levels. One thing is the steady price appreciation over the past four years has helped the GTA avoid the condo market crash many pundits had predicted. Of course, rising prices helps every market, especially if there's, there's errors being made. Increasing prices can uh, patch up a lot of holes. And he actually does mention the the development that Aaron was referencing in South Etobicoke. He's marketing for Madame in there, and he commented that the whole Etobicoke Motel Strip, which is the development site that, that Aaron referenced, has been a market that's doubled in price over the last seven years. It's had a relentless supply of new buildings coming, and there are three more buildings to come. And the last thing is actually a, a quote he's got about the OMB, and specifically between the OMB versus NIMBYism and the developers. It's, it's not that the OMB is favorable to developers, but developers prepare better and spend more and come up with a better case. The reasons why people object, such as they don't want to have their view changed, aren't really planning issues. So his comment on that, that Aaron was saying this is something we should try and dispel, is maybe the developers are coming in with a little more heavy artillery when they're going through the process. We really didn't plan that, but interesting that you had that article in the back pocket and kind of just covered it all in the first place. So yeah, I was, I was tempted to jump ahead and try and throw that in, but uh, I thought I'd just wait yeah. to, uh, wait until that have. point. Yeah. Nothing's ever planned on the Commercial Real Estate yeah. Podcast, just so you know. For, the, for those that have listened regularly, you're, you're probably fully aware of that. <laughs> that's. I think that's it for me. Uh, thanks very much, Richard. This was a wonderful conversation. I, I hope to have you on again sometime, and, and maybe next time we won't bring you on as, as the ULI uh, rep. We'll just bring you on for your information and insight. Well, I really appreciate it. This was a great opportunity. Thank you very much, both of you. We also want to thank our sponsor, First National. And if you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes. Tell a friend you enjoyed it. Follow our Twitter feed at CRE Podcast or join the Facebook or LinkedIn group. We're active on all fronts, so pick your platform. 
Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.